Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan. From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovall. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer on the show celebrating the Junos, luxury storage for your stuff, and the plea for more family doctors. But we begin with stumping for votes. The first full week of campaigning for the provincial election is now in the rearview mirror. Questions. Which leader is resonating with voters at this point? Are the issues important to Ontarians being addressed? And do the many promises add up? Make sense? Dollars and cents. Lindsay Finneran Jangral is one of Canada's leading digital public affairs strategists and is a senior VP at Hill and Knowlton. She joins us now on the feed. Really good to have you with us, Lindsay. Thank you. Great to be here. I call it Lecce Gate. Uh, King Vaughn MPP Stephen Lecce found himself in hot water earlier in the week. Lindsay, will this impact the PC's momentum? You know, obviously, during a campaign, you never want these sort of things to come out. It throws you off sort of the message of the day. It throws you off your rhythm. And so the PC party isn't going to be happy about this, especially given that is not a new uh, candidate. You know, I think they weren't probably anticipating new sort of things to come out from, from Lecce. Um, obviously, he, he's got to deal with it and he's got to repair his own sort of reputation and deal with his own race and his own riding. I imagine Doug is probably going to try to distance himself um, from it. And the PC party is going to try to continue on and to sort of acknowledge um, that Lecce clearly made a mistake uh, and, and move on from there and try to get their momentum going back. Um, but it's not what you want to see. Now, in terms of timing, better it comes out early in the campaign for them than later because they can sort of regain that momentum and, and you know, they'll look to go past it. And quite frankly, it's interesting, the timing of this. So we're in uh, the almost the middle of this provincial campaign. Uh, and as you say, Lecce has been front and center through most of the pandemic. And prior to that, when he uh, first uh, became a, a member of, of provincial parliament. So why didn't it come out then when he was campaigning four years ago? Why didn't it come out through the height of the pandemic when he was front and center on stage making education announcements? Why now? You know, it's a good question. I, I know it comes from Press Progress, which is obviously a progressive, uh, left-leaning sort of organization. So one has to suppose that they may have had this for a bit. Um, you you would likely hold it for during election. That's when it's going to have the sort of maximum impact um, because all eyes are on the government. All eyes are on the, the Ford government. Um, I imagine that's why it's come out now. And maybe four years ago, they didn't they didn't have it or no one had raised it. You know, some of the, we all have online histories, and it's harder and harder to go through them all because it is a lot to go through. Um, and sometimes even, uh, you know, campaigns don't touch them until four years later. The pandemic gave the PC party a lot of exposure over the past two years plus. There were daily press conferences, announcements from cabinet ministers. So it kind of stands to reason that that may give them an advantage through this campaign because the province, uh, the, the voters kind of know the people that are a part of that party, the ones that are running for re-election. You're exactly it's right. Um, you know, look, at the end of the day, we're coming out of COVID, and most people are feeling good about coming out of COVID. And they associate that with the current government of the day. It's why Trudeau has has good numbers, and it's why Doug Ford has good numbers. Um, you know, yes, were there missteps during COVID? Of course. But now they're at the tail end. They sort of get to look back and say, look, we got us through this. 
And, you know, I think that's reflected in where Doug Ford is polling right now. And there are some polls that say he's poised to clinch another majority. What are you hearing? I, I think I've seen those same polls, and I've, mm-hmm. you know, definitely heard that, you know, I think the the NDP and the Liberal are sort of fighting for second. I think that's their realistic um, hope. Um, you know, I think a minority is, is possible. It really depends on the, the performance of Del Duca of all three candidates. Uh, how strong can he come and how far back can the Liberals come, right? They, they went down to, what, six seats? Um, can they can they get back to sort of their normal number and how will that affect the dynamics? So he, of all of the party leaders uh, campaigning right now, he's the one that people don't really know as well because he wasn't uh, campaigning as leader of the Liberal Party last go-round. Why are his numbers increasing? It's slowly, incrementally, but, but his numbers are on the rise. His popularity is as well. Yes, I mean... Del Duca's biggest issue, and I think people have said this for, you know, since he's been elected, is that people don't know who he is. Mm. Once people are introduced to who he is and sort of some of the, the policies he's come out with, which I think have been packaged incredibly well, um, you know, people sort of are willing to give him a chance. I also think you can't overlook the fact that the liberal brand in Ontario is very strong. There have been many liberal governments, both federally uh, and provincially, and at the end of the day, it is the liberal brand that he's also attaching to his name. I looked into another poll recently that told us that a lot of women think that they want to vote for Del Duca, and a lot of men feel that they want to vote for Doug Ford. What have you heard? That's generally the split between conservatives and liberals. Uh, conservatives always have more male support, and liberals generally have more female support. Um, there are lots of different reasons for that. What I would say is that, uh, you know, Doug Ford, winning in the suburbs is key for any uh, party to win, uh, to form government. And to win in the suburbs, you actually have to win over women in the suburbs. So, you know, while that's true that conservatives sort of have less female supporters, they need enough that they can win those key ridings uh, in the suburbs. That's the only path to victory for for Doug Ford. And what are considered key ridings in downtown Toronto? I look at the colors, and I see a lot of orange in downtown Toronto, which surprised me the last go-round. Yes, well, downtown Toronto is always sort of the battles are between the NDP and the Liberals primarily. Of course, there are some one-off ridings that are different than that. And, of course, as we know last time, the Liberal vote collapsed uh, and the NDP Brew, where the sort of swing ridings come in is in the GTA, and those swings frequently between liberals and conservatives, depending on the government of the day. So when Doug Ford won four years ago, you'll look at those sort of 905 GTA ridings, and a large majority of them went to the PC government, and that's where one of the ways he was able to form a majority. Andrea Horvath, so far, uh, she is beginning to wane a little bit in terms of her numbers. At the, at, it's Del Duca moving forward at Horvath's expense. What does she need to do in terms of strength and getting her message across? What does she need to do in the next couple of weeks? You know, it's interesting because, you know, Andrea Horvath has a sort of a different the exact opposite problem that Del Duca has. She's been around for, I believe it's four election cycles now. People mm-hmm. know her name. And so, you know, it's sort of people know who she is. And if that's where the numbers stand, it's hard to move them because they, they have a sense of who you are. I think what she needs to do is, you know, and the NDP need to successfully position themselves as being the best sort of uh, guard against the PC government that they've held them account to four years and that they'll continue to. It's a hard argument to make, though, and, you know, sort of Del Duca coming in with 
big uh, packaged announcements makes it harder for her. So she she needs to really fight for that airtime and ensure she's out there and be seen to be sort of a, a credible option in, ter- in terms of any any vote but Doug Ford. And speaking of airtime, Mike Schreiner, the Green Party, you know, maybe it's just me, but I don't recall the Green Party being as involved in press conferences and debates and so on in the last election. Am I wrong in that? I don't either. I don't actually have have the information, but I, I do think he's, you know, he seems more front and center this election. Um, and I think that, you know, that's a, it's always good to see more candidates up on stage, see more points of view. Obviously, federally, there's always, there's far more just given the different dynamics across country. So it's interesting to see him sort of take on a bigger, a bigger role. Promises, promises, and that's what we're getting. And we got a lot of those from the the sitting government before the uh, the election campaign began. But we're hearing promises that some of them seem to be pie in the sky. That's just from me, a regular schmo listening to everything that's going on. But promises coming out of the mouths of all of the leaders. Do they make sense? Are they promises that they can keep if they are elected? Lead, uh, you know, the the premier and and the leading party. I mean, it depends who you ask. So, look, this is campaign season. This is when you make promises, whether they can be fully costed, whether you can make the numbers work, uh, you know, is frankly, is is up for debate. And, of course, if the liberals come out and say they're going to do a, a buck a ride, yeah. the conservatives are going to come out and say that that's financially irresponsible and you can't do it. You know, you know whoever gets elected is going to have to make the numbers work. This is a campaign season, and they're looking for the headlines. They're going to say and sort of, um, you know, whatever they have to, um, and package things in a way that will break through and get media attention and get social media attention, and that's what they're doing. So I think the buckle ride is a, a great instance of that. Mm-hmm. Can they make the numbers work? Let's see. But it's a great announcement. People remember it. It's catchy, um, and it, it's helped Del Duca. It's interesting as well, the, the top concerns for Ontarians, it sort of fluctuates between health care and affordable housing, health care and affordable housing, up and down. What are you hearing on the campaign trail? I think the number one issue, and those that ties sort of everything together, is affordability, affordability of life. Yeah. Um, and I think health care becomes a part of that um, in that we want to make sure that, you know, our, our grandparents are well cared for, that, you know, sort of our health care is sustainable and is affordable. Um, I, I think the number one issue, though, is affordability, and that comes in the form of, you know, inflation. Um, you're seeing a lot of transit announcements and, you know, sort of more highways, more transit funding. You're seeing a lot of announcements about affordable housing and, and zoning and how we build more houses. I think the number one issue all the parties are concentrating on is affordability because it is the number one issue in Ontario and arguably in Canada right now. Lindsay, you're one of this country's leading digital public affairs strategists. So how will the digital world influence or affect the political realm during this election campaign, do you think? Well, I mean, it's really, when it comes to advertising, the, the channel where they're reaching voters. And I think how you see that play out is that, you know, what messages work for certain ridings um, you'll see buried. So if you were to go and look at any of the sort of election ads out right now, you're going to see that there's a wide variety. And they're targeting those based on the top concerns and priorities of that riding. So, for instance, if there is a, a go train announcement uh, and say, you know, Markham, you're going to see ads targeted to Markham about the go train. I know Doug Ford talked about highways out in Oshawa last week. You're going to see ads targeted to Oshawa talk, talking about highways. So that digital piece really lets you tailor those messages to those audiences and ensure that, for instance, 
uh, the PC party isn't spending all that much money in downtown Toronto when they're never going to win a riding um, and where they don't need to to form government. Interesting. You know, I, I'm thinking about Doug Ford right now. And after the uh, Northern debate that took place earlier this week, he decided he wasn't going to be a part of the the post, uh, you know, the, the breakdown and, and meet the press kind of thing. Is that a typical strategy for an incumbent you know, it, it can be, and this is the the, beaut- the interesting dynamic right now, I would say, in communications, right? So yeah. you have the ability through digital advertising and through social media to speak directly to the people you believe you need to speak to. Obviously, the media still speak to a large majority of people, but there comes there are risks with that, right? The media can sort of, they will put the headline on it that they need to put on it. And so Doug Ford and his team, I think, are making the gamble that they have won their, you know, they're in first place. They have a large war chest to do a lot of digital advertising and targeted policy announcements. And they probably think that the risk talking some of the questions coming from media aren't going to paint Doug in the best light and they don't want those sound bites circulating. So it's, you know, it's one way of communicating in sort of the landscape we, we live in. Del Duca doesn't have that sort of luxury. He needs the media to get his name out and to sort of have that mass appeal of the media. And Doug's just not in that same position. And, and Doug Ford and his and, you know his campaign team can take a different strategy. There's a whole new group of voters this year, young people who weren't eligible to vote in 2018, and now they are. What do the parties need to do to take advantage of that? That's always, you know, the the interesting question because, you know, youth, the youth vote, the promised youth vote, it's a large majority, but getting them out to vote is very tricky. Um, you know, often they're away at university, getting them to actual ridings is, is difficult. Um, and then I think you look at the demographics and the generations, and we all know that 18-year-olds are not watching the evening news. They are not consuming traditional news. They are on TikTok. They are on, you know, social first channels. So reaching those voters requires a bit more creativity um, and doing things a bit different than the sort of standard campaign. So you're going to see particularly the liberals and the NDP try to, I would imagine, experiment and how to reach them. Um, you know, I think the PC party is sort of chasing those votes less, but generally the, uh, the NDP and the Liberal are after them. You're, you're going to see them on TikTok. You're going to see them showing up unexpectedly because that's what they're going to have to do to reach. We are about two and a half weeks away from Election Day, June the 2nd. Lindsay, what are we going to see in the coming weeks? Yeah, I think you're going to see sort of the volume be turned up all around. So elections, you know, at the beginning, only people who follow politics closely are paying attention. In the final week, or so it's, you know, most people start paying attention because they know they're going to have to cast their, cast their votes. So you're going to see more policy announcements packaged very creatively so that they, they become communications pieces. You're going to see candidates in key ridings. Um, and you're going to see candidates making sort of more, more promises, as you said earlier. And, you know, I think you're going to have to see, uh, the leaders differentiate themselves as well. So who, who is Doug Ford going to be? Who is Del Duca going to be? And who is Andrea Horvath going to be? They're going to have to clearly differentiate themselves for the final two weeks to go. Lindsay Finneran, Jagrat, Senior VP, Hillen Knowlton, also one of Canada's leading digital public affairs strategists. Thank you so much for your time on the feed. It was really interesting. Of course, it was great to chat. One of the many election issues is health care. Tina Cortez now with a call from the CMA. Dr. Catherine Smart is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Smart, your organization is calling for the key stakeholders to address the structural issues 
that the association is suggesting is decimating primary care. What does this mean and what is the impact on patients and their families? Well, what we have really is a system of primary care that was designed in the 1960s and has perpetuated now into current times. Um, And like many things, it's become antiquated and it's no longer really serving physicians in the system and clearly not serving patients. So most family practices are run like a small business where uh, physicians build a government for the services they provide. um, And then from that, they provide the infrastructure for the care in their privately run clinics. But of course, what's happened over time is the costs of doing that have massively increased. You know, the costs of the other staff that work in their, with them in their clinic, the cost of rent, electronic medical records, et cetera. So it's becoming financially much more challenging. And then you combine that with the massive increase in administrative burden for physicians. So things like electronic medical records, which should be making our lives easier, but often really increase the amount of time that needs spent uh, doing administration, increased need to fill out forms, things like insurance forms for patients, sick notes, uh, coordinating their care in terms of multiple referrals that often have multiple different forms that need to be filled out. Many people are spending several hours a day in addition to time with their patients uh, doing this type of work. And then on top of that, we have an aging population with more complex disease needing more time to sort their problems out in order to give them really the time that they're due. Um, And all this combines together to make that old model a very transactional fee-for-service style medicine, not really adequate for the patient's experience and, and certainly not for the physician either, who's really only driven by, the, by volume, which doesn't allow them to spend the time with people that they want to spend. So what that means ultimately for Canadians is newer graduates from family medicine are not choosing to take on a practice of patients, right? When we say practice, for most people, that means they can say, oh, this person is my family doctor. But fewer people are doing that, and that's left nearly 5 million Canadians without that access to primary care. So unless we really, you know, understand that fundamentally that way of doing things is no longer working and listen to doctors and other healthcare professionals who are saying, hey, we want to work in integrated teams. We need more support from the government for the infrastructure of that care. We want to be more patient-centered, have more time to deal with what people want from us and their more complex problems. We're not going to attract people into that area of work and more Canadians are going to lose their family doctor. So you talked about a lot of those pressures that family doctors are facing. Do you think that's why med students are opting out of family medicine? I do. And unfortunately, that's the trend that we're seeing with our national matching service called CARMS is the number or percentage of graduating medical students choosing family medicine is declining. And I think that is the reason. They see that that is the landscape of the job that they're entering into. They see the frustration of people in that style of medicine, and they think, you know, I don't think I want to do that. And they're, they're choosing other areas of specialization, which I think is really unfortunate because family medicine is the foundation of our system. And a, and a, a quality family doctor who's there dedicated for their patients dramatically improves people's health outcomes, saves money for the system, and is a hugely important part of, of people's journey as, as they age. Um, and that's what family doctors do. The idea is they care for you throughout your lifespan. I think I may already know the answer to this one, but did the pandemic highlight or exaggerate the already existing problems in healthcare? 
I think like many things, the pandemic has shone a spotlight on problems that already existed. So these aren't necessarily new problems, but I think the pandemic added new stressors. You know, many people had to pivot to virtual care, which has some benefits, but has also been stressful. Uh, many people had, had the pressure of how to make their offices safe for patients in light of the pandemic, which added huge costs. Uh, to do that, including the cost of personal protective equipment for them and their staffs that, that had to be paid for by physicians. Um, you know, I think we've seen rising just general frustration in the in community and amongst patients as they've had, you know, surgeries canceled, wait times extended as the rest of the system was stressed. And those problems, you know, flow back to the family doctor who's trying to reassure people and care for people who aren't able to access what they need in the system so I think all those things really increase the burnout, increase people's frustration. Um, and, and I think now we're seeing more more people to say, you know what, I just don't want to keep doing this. So where do we go from here? There's already a shortage of family doctors. And you're saying that some are saying, you know what, I just don't want to do this anymore. What happens next? Well, I think we have the solutions. You know, we're very fortunate in Canada to have many high-profile family doctors who've done a lot of research in this area and are very articulate about what needs to change, and, and they have those answers for government. But like many problems, what we need is, is people to be willing to sit together, define the problem together, listen to the people who have the problem about what it is, um, and, and then be really committed to that structural change it's going to need uh, to make it better. And I think, you know, what the challenge we have right now is, of course, it's in the interest of politicians to try to make it sound like everything's okay. And I think we're seeing daily, you know, the population sort of being falsely reassured that they've got things under control in the healthcare system. That's unfortunately just not true. We've got the family doctors there that are saying, look, we've got these new models, um, different ways of doing things, some of the things you and I have talked about today, different payment models, way to work in teams, way to innovate, modernize family medicine to make it attractive again. We just need the government to be willing to work with us on making some of those changes and how we do things. And we could be rolling out these new models. But the reality is they've got to be willing to come to the table and, and take that risk and be willing to make those changes. And I think if they do, we can see primary care, again, be there to meet the needs of our population. But that's not going to happen if we don't see governments committed to walking the walk with doctors. Is it about greater investment then? I think it's about partly about greater investment, but it's also about how we invest what we're already investing. So we know that we spend a lot of money on healthcare in Canada, as we should. It's an essential service for people. But we don't spend as much time as we should looking at where those health dollars go and what they're achieving. And that's why some of these the system bubble thinking is so important so that we have clear outcomes we're trying to achieve with those investments. And the investments are targeted towards incentivizing the styles of practice and the behavior we want for the outcomes that our population deserves to have. And once we can start tying those things together, I think what Canadians will find is we're going to get better returns on those investments, the service they receive will improve, and the people that are providing the care will enjoy their work environment more because it'll be designed with the patient at the center, which will let them do what they fundamentally want to do, which is care for patients. So what is the message from the CMA to those seeking provincial office come June 2nd? I think my main message and our organization's main message would be listen to physicians about what needs to change in the system. They're on the front lines. They see what's working. They see what's not. In terms of primary care, in Ontario, we have some examples of things like family health teams that are working well. Look at what's working there, what can be scaled and leveraged to the rest of the population, and create more opportunities for family doctors to do what they want to do, which is work in teams serving patients. 
And what's your final message right now to our listeners who are struggling to find that family doctor? Until those solutions are found, what can they do immediately? I think that's a really challenging, you know, right now the system is overloaded and there is not a lot of, you know, really short-term solutions in terms of if you're a person listening and you're thinking, wow, I really need a family doctor like right away. Unfortunately, right now that's not really achievable. I think you need to know in your community what's available. You know, many places will have some urgent care centers or drop-in centers where you can get some episodic care. And that's at least somewhat helpful in the short term, but that does not replace that longitudinal access to primary care. So I think, you know, what's really important is that people talk to their politicians. Politicians want to please the voter. um, And if we're not talking, we're not advocating for what we want, we're not going to see it in election platforms. We're not going to see it delivered when people form a government. So we need to be really clear with our elected officials that this needs to be a top priority. Dr. Catherine Smart, thank you for your time on the feed. Thank you for having me. After the break, the Ritz-Carlton of self-storage. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. Now, here's a really interesting quote from Steve Creighton, the executive VP of Diamond Storage. Our goal is to be the Ritz-Carlton of self-storage. Diamond's new flagship location on the Queensway in Etobicoke is proof positive, boasting 500,000 square feet of luxury with interior sections modeled after glamorous hotels in Las Vegas. So you may be wondering, why is Diamond trying to set the bar as high as possible when it comes to self-storage, and will it come at a cost? Pleased to have the man himself, Steve Creighton, on the feed right now to explain. Hi, Steve. Uh, What a pleasure and what a great concept. Where did this all come from, the Ritz-Carlton of self-storage? Well, Anne, it's a very good question. You know, when we established the Diamond brand back in 2006 in Ottawa, you know, we set out to change the self-storage industry and to entirely change the way people actually thought about storage. You know, people's perception, you've probably seen it, was always those single-story buildings with garage doors, you know, usually orange, located Mm -hmm. in industrial parks or rural areas. Um, But, you know, with our industry-leading model that we've created, Diamond and I was really moved self-storage into the mainstream. Our facilities are in high-traffic areas with high visibility and usually adjacent to big-box retail. We made it very, very convenient now for people to go back and forth from their storage suite uh, because, really, we've created an extension to their home or their business. I did a deep dive into your website. I've seen photos of the exterior of many of your locations and the interior. So here's what I pulled out of it. You can rent an elegant office. You can store wine in your customized cellars. You can hold meetings in state-of-the-art boardrooms. You can sip cocktails and enjoy nibbles in your exquisite tasting lounges. And it's the five-star hotel of storage. How do you do this and and why? Is it not just simple or made easier for people just to kind of go in, put their stuff in storage, and walk out the door? Why do you want it to be an experience as well? Well, it's very important, Anne, for people to know that their stuff is safe. You know, those traditional facilities I described a moment ago, you know, you were dealing with issues like mold and mildew and bugs and mice and all those sorts of things. And, you know, people are living in cram spaces. We're very much a consumer society right now with the price of real estate going through the roof. 
People needed a reliable, cost-effective, you know, location close to their homes. So again, it would be easily accessible so they could put their stuff of value and not have to worry about it. And, and really, it's all about service, you know, at the end of the day. And, and the traditional self-storage facilities have not really offered that service. You know, women are the most important customer that we have. And the, the female consumption patterns are much more discerning than men. And they require a lot better quality and a lot better service and a sense of security and cleanliness and all that sort of stuff. So with all of that in mind, Anne, we designed the Diamond Storage brand, and it's been very, very successful. Why the bells and whistles, the, the wine cellars and the boardrooms and the ability to rent an office and to uh, enjoy the tasting lounge? Why that part of it? Why do you expand beyond the, the, the self-storage aspect of what you do? Well, there's a huge amount of demand, actually, Anne, for what you've just described. Uh, we keep a very close tab on our guests. We, we have a, a hospitality approach. That's why I keep referring to them as guests and not customers. Um, but businesses, particularly during the pandemic, uh, have been rationalizing their operations. Um, you know, people have moved back home. People have cohabitated. And they had too much stuff, but they needed something totally reliable. Businesses in particular didn't want to enter into long-term leases uh, with existing space because of the uncertain economic conditions. So dining gives them a very flexible month-to-month opportunity to not only store their things and have access to our, you know, A-plus quality uh, storage facilities, but also have the adjacency to operate their businesses. So they can operate out of offices, meeting spaces, workstations, along with uh, boardrooms and, and meeting rooms and all that sort of stuff. So a business can operate with no strings attached and have that instant professionalism attached to them. It gives me the sense that you can also hold an event there somehow. When I think about the wine cellar and the tasting lounge, can events be held there as well? Well, they absolutely can. And the wine cellar is a very unique offering. There's nothing like it in the world. Not only do we have very, very upscale storage uh, solutions for your wine, for the wine enthusiasts, but we can accommodate uh, wine tasting events, uh, family events, celebratory events, business meetings, all those sorts of things, because we have wine tasting rooms, we have event rooms, and we have a beautiful lounge, which is nice as any bar or lounge in the GTA, frankly. And it's, again, it's sort of a complementary service to our business offerings as well, where people can store with us their stuff, but they can also enjoy the whole atmosphere of, of the wine club at the Diamond Wine Cellar. Do you also offer help when it comes to moving in or out? We sure do. I mean, we have so so many things that we offer to our guests, which is unheard of in the industry. We offer free truck, free driver, and free movers, and to get your stuff into our facilities. So we make the whole moving in uh, very simple and hassle-free. So we do all of that. Uh, we also have um, an app-based access system to your storage uh, suite, so you don't have to have locks or keys or anything like that. We're constantly there to help you in our in our really uh, newly reimagined retail stores to offer you, you know, moving and packing supplies and boxes to help you get organized for your move as well. And then we constantly liaise with you during the course of your of your time with us to make sure that everything's going to your satisfaction. Some people's needs for storage increase, some uh, decrease, and so we can put you in a different sized unit to accommodate your existing needs. So, or changing needs, really. And so at the end of the day, we're really offering a storage solution and not just storage space. We're operating an experience and offering an experience, as you mentioned earlier on, that is really unparalleled in the marketplace. What about safety and security when you're there, but when you're not there as well? 
Well, that's a very important part of our offering, Anne, and we do offer 24-7 surveillance of the entire facility inside and out. We have extended retail hours, so for 13 hours a day, our staff is there to assist you. Um, and then any time you come in after hours, you need special access codes, and we have a command center that monitors everything. The place is very uh, brightly lit. We have intercoms throughout, and it's very easy for anybody to ask questions or to, to seek help if anything uh, occurs during the evening. So it's very, very secure. And back to my point on women earlier, women make 70% of the decisions around storage. But traditionally, they haven't liked the, the normal facilities because they don't feel safe, they don't feel secure, they don't feel the place is clean. Well, our facilities, a lot of our female guests are in the facility constantly uh, because they feel very, very comfortable, secure, and safe. This is the hard question, and it always is when you talk about money. Does this come at a cost? And you know what I mean by that. Is, are you able to make it affordable for people because there are so many perks that come along with storing with you? We sure can, Anne. And the reason why we do that is that our facilities are large. The Diamond Center average size is, is quite significant in the hundreds of thousands of square feet. So we get good economies of scale, and we're able to offer those cost savings back to our guests. And so we, you know, we might be the Ritz-Carlton of storage, but we don't come at a Ritz-Carlton hotel price. We're, we're very mainstream. So when you add up the, the entire value proposition that you get by storing a diamond, it just, it, it, it's just incredible. And this is why, again, we have been so successful, where people really see that we're genuinely interested in, in securing and storing their stuff. And it's, it's very secure and safe and easily accessible. And the price is, is very, very affordable. This is radio, so I want you to do the best you can, and I think you'll be terrific at this. Can you describe, so that we can feel and, and, and see in our mind's eye, what the Queensway facility, your flagship facility, looks like and, and offers? Sure, I'd love to do that. So okay. when you walk in, first of all, we have a beautiful reimagined retail store that not only has the movie and packing supplies and boxes that we talked about earlier, but has a whole selection of home decor type products to also get you stylishly organized at your home or place of business. So you come in in a non-traditional sort of way. We have um, kiosks that we can sit down with you and talk about what your storage needs are. And then if you walk through the facility, the first thing that will attract your attention is our drive-through bays. We have the, this massive quarter-mile-long drive-through bay that allows you to be fully protected from the elements when you're inside the facility. You don't have to worry about how cold or hot or whether it's raining or snowing or whatever outside. You then go into our corridors to access your storage suite. Beautiful, clean, bright, with painted floors and piped-in music and intercoms available, uh, very easily accessible doors where you can get your stuff in and out of very simply. Um, then when you go to the wine cellar, as I say, you'd think you were walking into the nicest lounge uh, in, in the GTA. In the work-refined area, it's a very curated, rich environment where you walk in and, and it, it just breathes instant success for small and medium-sized businesses. So it's a totally different experience, Anne, unlike anything you've ever seen before attached to self-storage. So here's the final quote that I pulled from your website. Diamond will completely change the way you think about storage, and I think you've just done it. Steve Creighton, Executive VP, Diamond Self Storage, thank you so much for the guided tour and for the great information here on the feed. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Anne. Great chatting with you. Coming up, the 51st Annual Juno Awards. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Anne Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region.
Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. The Junos are in person Sunday night at the Budweiser stage in Toronto. Isn't that great? Jim Lang and Kevin Frankish with a couple of the nominees. I was kidding the pain, the only way I know how. But baby, I know better now. Oh, I loved you the way, the only way I know how. But I can love you better now. Well, she is not only nominated for uh, Adult Contemporary Album of the Year in the Junos, but she is also a very strong mental health advocate. Serena Ryder joins me right now. Hi, Serena. Hey, Kevin. How's it going? It is going well. Congratulations on the nomination. Thank you. Yeah, I freaked out when I found out. Did you like, freak? Did you freak such out? Such a big deal. Okay, how yeah, did how did, I did you freak out? All right, we're we're going to reenact this right now. How did you find out? Yeah. How did you find out? Somebody call you? Did you get an email? What'd you get? Um, I got uh, I got a text message from a bunch of different uh, people that I work with, and a phone call, and I freaked out so much because this <laughs> record means so much to me more than any album that I've ever put out um, because of what it's about. And I turned on the album and I danced to the <laughs> entire thing. Oh, in I, my living room. That is fantastic. Dancing. Are you a good dancer, Serena? A good dancer? Oh, I mean, I love to dance. And I think that the only thing that is required to be a good dancer with quotation marks is having the best time ever, enjoying yourself. You know, it's like, if you're having the best time, it's contagious. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about your journey. And you know what? Just just so we can put all the cards on the table, uh, I live with depression, a, a generalized anxiety disorder, and severe depressive disorder. What's your diagnosis? Well, you know, I've had lots of different diagnoses over the years, um, but over the last, you know, like I've suffered from depression and anxiety, um, but over the last kind of four years, I've really kind of stepped away from pathologizing my suffering and finding a way to really listen to my emotions and see my emotions as my compass, my guidance system. And, you know, I, I have such a, a deeper relationship with myself when it comes to listening to how I feel and allowing my emotions to show me, you know, where I need to be going, where I, I need to be kind of saying no and stopping a little bit more. So I take them as, you know, my actual meter and my guidance system. And since I've kind of switched my, you know, perspective on, on what those mean, my whole life has kind of changed. And over the last, I would say, like, maybe over four years, just different lifestyle changes and things that I've done have given me a sense of balance in my life that I've never had before in my entire life. You know, since I was 12 years old, um, I started suffering from depression and I started suffering with anxiety when I was in my early 20s. And now I really see when those emotions come up as a very wise meter of where I need to be going, what I need to be listening to, and finding different ways to, to find healing. Like, and dancing is a really big part of it, mm-hmm. um, to be honest. Like, kind of somatic healing, like moving your body and moving your emotions around. And then also, like, when I start suffering, you know, feeling like I'm, I'm starting to get depressed or something, it's like depression in a lot of sense, senses, it's like depression has the word deep rest in it, you know? And I feel like it's a part of, for me, I look at it as, as a different season and there's different seasons in nature. And I really feel like 
if we were, you know, I, if I am to honor the different seasons in my life, like, and trust them like the seasons of nature, I feel like I, I definitely have more of a healthy, balanced life. When you're living in hell, you try anything that helps. The album is uh, the art of falling apart, and uh, you had you had uh, posted for years. I tried to walk a path of healing, hoping that one day I would finally arrive. Now I'm realizing that uh, I'm only either walking towards or away from myself, my truth. Explain that for me. Yeah, so I feel like you know we kind of define ourselves a lot by you know this is who I am, this is what I do, and when times in our lives when we start doing something differently or maybe not kind of sticking to those very intense definitions of ourselves, we kind of freak out a little bit and be like, oh, that's not me. That's not normal. And I feel like as human beings, we're constantly changing and we kind of need to make more space in order to maybe step away from who we necessarily have to find ourselves to be. And the journey away from ourselves can be a very healthy journey. It just depends on how fast and how far you go. And I feel like there's a, there's a, a vast terrain outside of who we think we are. And if we take little tiny steps outside, we'll get to know the terrain outside of ourselves and be able to find our way back to, to who we really are. And I think that's something that happens to everybody in their lives where they feel, you know, quote-unquote, not quite themselves. Mm -hmm. But I think that we need to make room to change and to become new people and, and to learn new things about ourselves. So that's that's kind of what that's about for me. And, and the, the funny thing is, you are doing something that psychologists and analysts all want their patients to do, and that is to journal. One of the best ways to deal with any sort of depression is to journal because it gives you a chance to look inwards. It gives you a chance to be on the outside looking inwards and saying, okay, what's going on? What happened then? Because, I, you know, I don't know if I was present at that time. So your journaling is your music and you're able to express yourself in your music. Do, do you feel that? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's almost like, you know, little pieces of myself that come out and I'm able to look from the outside in and look at these pieces of music and these places that I've been in in my life. Like even the stuff that I was writing when I was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, um, it's very much telling of where I was emotionally, you know, even with metaphors and the different topics that I would, I would speak of and sing of. Um, it's very, very telling. And so it's, it's been such a great tool to to learn about myself. Absolutely. Where are you now? We, we've talked a lot about where you were and your journey. Where is Serena Ryder today? Today, I'm in a really grateful place. And oh, also I love in a place that you of, said grateful. I love that. Sorry, continue. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm in a place of you know, all of the things that I've been through and all of the different ups and downs in my mental wellness journey, it's, there's come a lot of gratitude because I realized that 
I'm never going to know the answers for sure. I'm never going to know what the future holds. There's no, this is the right way, this is the wrong way. It's all discovery. And so I feel like I'm in a place of real, like, excitement of living in the mystery because there's so much to discover. And I feel more like a student than I ever have in my entire (laughs) life. And really, really um, inspired by that, inspired by not knowing what the future holds and being able to to live in this beautiful mystery, you know, called life that's painful and joyful and complex. And not knowing for me now is kind of one of the most fulfilling things to me. You're making me smile. You're making me smile. Mm. Because a lot of people don't make it as far as you have. Uh, so proud of you. Congratulations on so much, Serena, the album, your journey, and where you are today. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Serena Ryder speaking with me, the Juno Sunday, May the 15th in Toronto at the Budweiser stage. A celebration of Canadian music, the Junos on 105.9 The Region. So it happens when you're 20, you think you're interesting and unique, right? Everything you do is original. And then you hit 34, and suddenly you have a favorite font. (laughs) My dreams are boring at 44. That's how boring I am. I had a dream last week I was buying an iPad. The 51st edition of the Juno Awards, and a big part of it is the comedy album of the year. And growing up, listening to comedy albums was a must for anyone throughout Canada. And one of the people nominated is an extremely talented comedian, Gavin Stevens, and he joins me today. Gavin, how are you? I'm good. How you doing? Good. I, I'm, I mean, comedy albums to me is so important. And the all-inclusive coma, the, the cover of it, the, the title about being over 40 and all the topics you cover... It's the thing we need right now, Gavin. Thank you. Oh, oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's where you are. It's it's kind of a funny age being over forty. So the album works that way, I think. No, obviously you've been in the game a long time to put together and yeah. have the kind of chops to do this. The way you approach comedy, the way you craft it, has it evolved as you gotten older? Uh yeah, actually, because uh, when you're younger as a comic, you um you're kind of in, in the scene, you're kind of like, this is, you know, it's all fun. And then you get to my age and you're like, Oh, it's almost a job. I mean, it's still fun, but you, you got, you know, you got family and stuff and you want to be at home watching Netflix. <laughs> so, so your approach is more like you have a purpose to be there. Like you need to be there for a reason, not just for fun. Everything becomes more like a reason for everything. Which I think makes good comedy. Absolutely. Nominated for Comedy Album of the Year for the 2022 June Awards, the amazing Gavin Stevens. And it's, I mean, all-inclusive coma. I love it how you just look like a wiped-out old guy. Uh, I don't know about you, <laughs> about you but uh, growing up, I can remember uh, being in high school, and the first time I heard a George Carlin album from a friend of mine, because my parents would never allow it in our house, and was at a friend's house. Yeah. Or Cheech and Chong, and we were like, "Do you like? Could you hear that? I mean, w- w- was a comedy album, a Eddie Murphy and stuff like that, a big deal to you as you were growing up as well, Gavin? No, no, yeah, Delirious, which was oh. called Comedian. I listened to that on cassette tape like, <laughs> over and over again. Cheech and Chong too. I love Cheech and Chong and Adam Sandler. I used to listen to all those. Like, yeah, but like, like I'm old, so it was cassette tapes. I had a lot of cassette tapes of uh, comedy albums. 
So here's my question to you. I'm, I'm a lover of the comedy album, and you mentioned Delirious mm-hmm. and the genius of it. So when you're putting it together, are you creating uh, bits and jokes and skits specific for the album? Or are you co- sort of culling the, the A-list, the cream of the crop of your act for the last two or three years? I kind of, this one, like, I think before it was just like, kind of like just calling the best. And this one, it kind of organically came from the same voice. Like all the jokes kind of fit into a theme. Not that it was, it's not, it's, it's not as planned as it is, but it is kind of planned. So it kind of, it kind of, I, I, I did the debaters uh, years ago and uh, I kind of, you have to write in themes. So it kind of helped me understand like, oh, let me craft my jokes in chunks of like that kind of thing. So it, 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 the jokes fit a theme. Uh, yeah. You can follow Gavin on Twitter, Gavin B. Stevens, Instagram, Count Gavin, and his website, GavinStevens.ca. Topics from this great album, Ready for Bed, like, if I can make it to 10, I've done well. You're boring. I like being boring, so it speaks to me. And millennials, and I have two daughters who are millennials and trying to understand them. I can't tell you, Gavin, how many times my wife and I have been sitting there and the kids have gone to their respective rooms and we had to search Urban Dictionary to figure out what words they used at dinner. (laughs) Honey, what did they say? Yeah. Yeah, I just found out like saying okay could be passive aggressive. I didn't know that. Like what? Text, I hadn't. I, apparently, I just found that out this weekend. So <laughs> I use okay all the time, and I mean it as okay. But yeah, apparently, I also kind of like this with this album. I'm kind of sympathetic with millennials because I think people trash on millennials. Yeah. So I was like, they entered a hard job market, and that's kind of the bit where it's like they have gig work. But yeah, yeah, I'm I'm with you. It's like I kind of just like TikTok. I look at it. I don't. I should be honest, but I. It. It feels. I, I feel old. I feel confused. It, it, Gavin, I, I've watched a bunch of your stuff in YouTube before we spoke, and 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 mm-hmm. wa- watching your stage presence, it, there, there's a certain comfort level. It seems so natural that you're on stage and doing it. it. Nothing ever seems contrived or forced. How long did it take to have that? Where you're on stage, you're in your absolute comfort zone. That, that's years and years because uh, I've been terrified for most of it. So like I've got a point to, I would say like about 10 to 15 years in where I'm like, you just kind of like, Oh, I'm going to do horrible. And then you just like, I, I started like, I put myself at the bottom and hopefully everything will go great. And then now it's just, Oh, I'm okay. There's a time when you like, I know Bill Burr talked about this where like mm. he couldn't eat dinner before going on stage. I can do that now. Like I understand that. Like, yeah, I can, I can have chicken and then go on stage. I'm fine. All right. Like but earlier on, I couldn't. I couldn't. Oh, that's amazing. Gavin Stevens, follow him on Twitter, Instagram, check out his website, gavinstevens.ca, nominated for Comedy Album of the Year for the 51st June Awards in Toronto, Budweiser stage for the all-inclusive coma. Please check him out. Gavin, thank you so much for doing this. I'm a big, big fan. Uh, I think it's fantastic well, thank you're, you. you're nominated, and uh, I, I, I only expect bigger and better things in the future with this kind of skills and talent you have. I appreciate that. Thank you very much for having me. It's awesome. The Junos on 105.9 The Region. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.